Uh, we do pray for all that has gone on in the youth retreat over this past weekend. And we pray that your word would have its uh, impact upon the hearts of these young men and women. And Father, we pray that there would be a moment in which they would uh, consider carefully and meditate carefully upon Christ. Bring them back safely to us uh, uh, despite the, the rainy weather. We pray too this morning for North Creek Church and we pray that they would have unity amidst their diversity. Uh, we pray that the church would love those who, with whom they have nothing in common because of the gospel. We pray in that church for transparent and meaningful relationships. And we pray for uh, their church, the church uh, songs that are sung there. We pray for wisdom for Dan Grassi, their director of worship, that the songs there would really teach members to biblically confess and lament and praise. Uh, we do not cease to pray for our nation and its sentiment towards abortion. Uh, we, can, we ask that you would have mercy upon us and forgive us of our apathy or indifference and to bring healing to those who have performed abortions or have had an abortion or, or even pressured others to get an abortion. Uh, lead us to the cross of Christ where no sin is so big that your grace isn't bigger still. Give wisdom and courage to pro-life legislators and executives uh, that they might protect the innocent and the vulnerable no matter in the womb or outside the womb, no matter how small, no matter their cognitive ability, no matter their dependence or independence. And we pray that there would be a growing spirit of support for adoption and foster care in our land. Lord, we also pray for the Sahel, the northern region of Africa and the north-south fault line between Muslim and Christian majority areas. We pray for the sporadic outbreaks of violence in Nigeria that has escalated into sometimes intense violence against Christians. We pray for those orchestrating violence to be foiled, for those on both sides who love peace to prevail through wisdom and discipline and graciousness, and give Christians and evangelists a kind of strength that isn't harsh or hard, that isn't angry or condescending, and give them courage that is not merely ruthless Keep them from being clanging symbols in the streets. Cause them to be bold with love. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, cause it to be the treasure of our hearts. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning is a short one. So our reading is a short one. It comes from the book of Exodus chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, or if you don't have one, you can grab one in those pews right in front of you, and turn to Exodus chapter 20, and we are going to read, or I will read for us, verse 7. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Listen carefully to God's word. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. May God bless the reading of his word. 
we know that names are important. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, the shoe company, Nike, uh, they courted basketball star Steph Curry, trying to convince him to sign with their company. Uh, they set up a meeting. They even had a nice PowerPoint presentation to show Curry why Nike is the brand of choice that he should go with them. Only Curry never signed with them and would go on to have a contract with the brand Under Armour. Now, why is that? Why did Steph Curry spurn Nike? Because in the pitch meeting, a Nike official addressed Stephen Curry as Stefan. Now I know it's tricky. How do you pronounce S-T-E-P-H-E-N? Is it Stephen, Stephen, the biblical way, the right way? Or do you say Stefan? But the pitch, but the pitch meeting only went worse. The PowerPoint slide for Curry featured Kevin Durant's name on it, left there by accident, obviously from reused materials. And from that moment on, Steph Curry and his team simply stopped listening. Nike, you could say, dropped the ball, and uh, they did not sign with the person that would become a four-time NBA champion, two-time MVP, a finals MVP. You see, names are significant. They really matter. Uh, just ask any parent. Parents know that the names of their children matter. Parents understand that one of the most important things that they can do is the first thing that they do, which is to give them a name. Uh, some parents really want their children's name to be really original, so they'll come up with things like X-A12. And other parents just want to make sure that they choose a name so that their children won't be teased. And then there are some parents who really, you know, open up their Bibles or trying to find the most obscure names possible, explore genealogies, hop online. And children, if you're here this morning, I'm sure your name is very important and there's a meaning behind it. So make sure to talk to your parents about that after service. But names matter. They matter to us. They matter to our children. And as it turns out, it matter, they, the name matters to God. Names matter to God. This is what we see as we come to the third of the Ten Commandments here in Exodus chapter 20. Now you'll recall from the previous weeks that the first commandment calls God's people to an undivided allegiance. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And we understand why this commandment is so important and why it's even the first commandment because it is the most fundamental commandment that you worship the right God, that there are no other gods. The second commandment calls for an undiminished worship, as we saw last week. You shall not make for yourself an image. We saw last week this is so important because it matters not only who you worship, but how you worship. But if we're honest, as we come to the third commandment, it doesn't seem that serious. 
In fact, this law just doesn't seem that hard to avoid breaking. I mean, just don't swear, right? When you stub your toe, when you spill your coffee, don't use the name of God like a cuss word. Simple. We're done. What's the next commandment? But while this command does have something to say to us about misusing God's name, especially in our speech, it has a much deeper and more expansive application than apply a little bit of self-control. So this morning, when it comes to the name of God, I'd like us to consider three ways in which we can think about this commandment. First and most importantly is that we revere God's name. Revere God's name. The commandment says you shall not take the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. The word take can be translated to take up or to bear something. And the word vain can mean empty, or worthless, or no good purpose. In other words, to take up or bear the Lord's name in vain is to use God's name flippantly, falsely, inconsequentially, irreverently. Now, it's not that God is opposed to his name being used or for your, he's forbidding you to use his name there's a superstition among Orthodox Jews that you cannot say his name. So every time they're reading their Hebrew scriptures and they come across the name Yahweh, they will replace it with the, with, with the word Adonai or Lord. But that's not what this is about. God wants us to use his name. Isn't it amazing that God gives us his name? He says it's Yahweh. He gives us his name because he is a personal God. And he over and over again in the scriptures Characters and people in the Bible are always using the name of God. 7,000 occurrences in all of the name of God, of people addressing him personally. What God forbids is not the use of his name, but the misuse of his name. To use it and to take it up and to bear it carelessly, thoughtlessly. Now the Old Testament has a broad category of sins that, that kind of cover using God's name in vain. In Leviticus 19.12, you don't use God's name in an oath falsely. In Leviticus 24.16, you don't curse or blaspheme the name of God. Uh, in Jeremiah 14.14, 14, there's an indictment saying, God says, you don't think up visions and prophecies in my name when you are simply a false prophet. There, those are some of the ways in which God's name was misused in the Old Testament. And taking the Lord's name in vain is serious business. It comes with a warning. It says, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Uh, the precise punishment is left unspecified. But it is a promise here that he will not leave the guiltless, he will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's a, oh, it's a warning that says, I wouldn't do it if I were you. You see, the third commandment, something we might think is no big deal. 
God says it's a very big deal. And turn with me one book over to Levit- Leviticus chapter 24. I want you to see this. We're going to do a little bit of Bible flipping this morning. Leviticus chapter 24. And the context here in verse 16 is that someone has blasphemed the name of the Lord. Leviticus 24, 16. And the people of the Lord hold this person in custody because they want to know what will this person's punishment be. Look at verse 16. Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely put to death. Shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. This verse is certainly not applicable today, okay? So don't go around stoning people for misusing God's name. We are not the nation of Israel. We do not relate to the law in the exact same way, but this tells us how seriously they treated violations of the third commandment. And we might think to ourselves, why so serious? Shouldn't violating the command be something like, oops, like just kind of, hey, this is just a slip of the tongue in a moment of pain when I stub my toe or something like that? I'll just do better next time. Now, it's serious because God's name is the sum of his character. God's name is the sum of his character. It's, it's about who he is. It's his identity. Now, turn back to Exodus Chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, in verse 13. You remember this passage? We were in it last year, I think. And Moses is commissioned to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And in verse 13, he's wondering, you know, who shall I say sent me? And God says in verse 14, I am who I am. Moses asks, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you, that name Yahweh. Now, when we studied this passage, we made the case that I am is not just a label that you slap onto God. No, it speaks to the sum of his character, his person, his essence. It reveals his aseity, meaning that God exists in himself. It reveals that he does not need anything outside of himself to exist or to find any purpose in his life. He does not owe his being to anybody else or anything. He is self-existent, transcendent. Last passage to turn to, Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. You know, Moses says to God in verse 18, please show me your glory. He wants to see God. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you 
and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord or Yahweh. And I'm sure Moses is saying, like, God, I just wanted to see you. You've already told me your name. That was back in Exodus chapter 3. I already know your name. What's the big deal? Well, look at chapter 34, verse 6. Moses is hidden inside the cleft of the rock. The Lord passes by, and it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God's glory passes by. His name is announced and it's linked with his character. It's linked with all that he is and who he is and what he's like. The two things are, are connected, the name and his character. And you see, we understand that. We understand that our name is not something tangential to who we are. It marks us. It identifies us. And in time, as people get to know you, your name has expectations. Your name, has, it embodies all sorts of, uh, of experiences. One of my son's names is, uh, is Haddon. It's not a common name, uh, and it's often mispronounced. Teachers, friends, coaches, when they first meet him, they'll say, Hayden. And my son is pretty even keel. He doesn't really care that much that it's mispronounced. But I tell him, no. You are named after Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great Christian preacher and my hope in giving you that name is that you might embody some of those characteristics, those godly characteristics of this great Christian man in history. So when they say Hayden, tell them no. There's no Charles Hayden Spurgeon. There's Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And say your name is Haddon. Because when somebody's name comes up, a whole person comes to bear Nobody wants their name to be ridiculed. Nobody wants their names to be mocked, blasphemed, used carelessly, used as a swear word. Because you're, because you're talking about a person. It's not just a name. It's why when comedian Chris Rock made fun of Jada Pinkett Smith at an awards show last year, her husband, Will Smith, got out of his chair and slapped him. And what did Will Smith say? said, keep my wife's name out of your mouth. Everywhere in Scripture, the name of the Lord is exalted in the highest possible terms. It is to be praised, honored, celebrated. Psalm 8-1, we sung it, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 96, 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Psalm 103, we know this one, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. What is the very first thing we are taught by Jesus when we pray? We, what do we pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Church, God's name is precious, isn't it? And we would, uh, and we, if we took time to think about it, we would understand how precious it really is. Remember how the name of Christ has been an anchor to your soul. How often have we been comforted through the valley of the shadow of death when we know that our good shepherd is with us? How often have we been able to endure persecution with our eyes fixed on the suffering servant? How many times have our heads been lifted up out of the dust because we've been praying to our great high priest? How many tempests has the Prince of Peace calmed? And when feeling alone in this world, how often do we rest in his name, Emmanuel, or even friend? Church, we must revere and savor God's name. So what does it mean to apply this third commandment for us? What does it mean to apply this commandment for us? This brings us to our second consideration this morning. Use God's name reverently in your speech. Use God's name reverently in your speech. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want to be legalistic. But it is true what Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, pours forth speech, our mouth speaks. So I do like the two categories that a commentator, Victor Hamilton, gives for our speech. He says we violate this command when we use God's name frivolously and when we use it falsely, those two ways. First, frivolously. Something is frivolous when we think of it as light or inconsequential. doesn't matter. Uh, This means we ought not to make, I think, vain repetition of the Lord's name. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 7, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, I'm not talking about an earnest cry from the heart. Somebody might say, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Oh, God, have mercy on me. That's not an empty use of God's name. But it would be an empty use if we took the name of the Lord and used it as a punctuation mark. Uh, Some of us have this tendency. Dear God, We come to you this morning, and God, Jesus, oh Lord Jesus, you are awesome, and Spirit, we need you. Now, if you pray that way, I just want you to think, think about what you're saying. Uh, I'm not telling you that there's some sort of math formula here, that if you use the name too many times in in your prayer, then it's, it's too much, it's in vain. I would say, repeat it earnestly repeat it. Let it flow from an engaged and imploring heart. That pleases God for you you to use his name that way. So don't be afraid of praying and using God's name, but also don't be afraid simply to pause and think about the words you're using. Don't carelessly throw out the name of the Lord because you don't quite know how to end your prayer. And don't use God's name as a curse word. Now, I understand that modern cursing is different from that in the Old Testament. In the Bible, blaspheming God's name isn't just a bad habit that somebody has. So it's different. But I think using God's name as a curse word falls under the frivolous category. 
It says something about your attitude towards God when you can just use his name so lightly and carelessly. Certainly as Christians, we are talking about our friend, our cre- but we are also talking about our savior, our creator. And so we should not use his name as an expression of shock or outrage or anger. We shouldn't just say Jesus Christ as an exclamation point. I don't think it's a misunderstanding of this commandment to bring it to bear on the constant and pervasive use of, oh my God, in every possible situation. And I think you can, again, use it, truly call upon God, express your lamentation to him by saying, oh my God, call upon his name. Those are not violations of the third commandment, but I think to use it in every possible situation is to use it frivolously. I wouldn't even use substitutes like G's. I wouldn't even type O-M-G. Again, I'm, I don't want to be a legalist. I am not the language police here. I understand that slang changes over time. The purpose isn't for you to parse out the 10 words that you can say or cannot say and then come to me and ask me for permission of whether or not you can say this word. That's not the point. The purpose is to remember who God is. He is the I am. He is our creator. Jesus, our savior. It is his name. It is his person. Let's not use it flippantly, but reverently. So don't use God's name frivolously. And don't use God's name falsely. Now, I think this is a more serious way to break the third commandment. Sometimes we use the name, of the name of God for our own manipulation, basically to advance our own agenda. So we make our plan and we execute it in the name of God, trading on his reputation to gain support for the direction that we have already decided upon. Uh, we baptize our human agendas with heavenly endorsement. Or more, the more common expression is we play the God card. In the book Just Do Something, Kevin DeYoung writes a story of how his roommate asked a young lady out on a date. And she wasn't interested. And he writes this. She was a sweet girl, a good Christian. She didn't mean to have bad theology. But instead of saying, I'm not interested or I don't like you, she went spiritual on him. She said, I've been praying a lot about you, and the Holy Spirit told me no. And this poor guy got rejected not only by this sweet girl, but by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) The third person of the Trinity took a break from pointing people to Jesus to tell the girl not to date my roommate. But people do this all the time. Jen Wilkin writes, has wise counselors questioned your plans? Just tell them, God told you. Not interested in a ministry opportunity? Just say, you need to pray about it. And you sense the Lord calling you in another direction. Need to add more punch to your political view? Say that this is biblical. And all other positions are sin. And church, to say God told me this when the Bible has already said what he has needed to say into our lives and say God told me this and told me to tell you this and this is a prophecy for you, well, 
that is using God's name in vain. I understand that there can be an inner leading of the Holy Spirit, but that is not scripture, that is not authoritative. So church, let us use God's name reverently in our speech, not flippantly or falsely. And our last consideration this morning, our last consideration this morning, bear God's name reverently in our lives. So first, we talked about revering God's name. Second, we said, use God's name reverently in our speech. Third, bear God's name reverently in our lives. Here, I believe, is the main and more expansive application of the third commandment. As I said earlier, the verb in the commandment, take up, can be translated, or to take the Lord's name in vain, can be translated take up or bear, carry. Now, two other passages in Exodus use the same word to speak of bearing the name. So, Let's look again, flip to one more passage here in Exodus chapter 28. Buried here in the instructions for building a tabernacle is the plan of what Aaron, the high priest, is going to wear when he approaches the tabernacle. He is the, Aaron is going to be the only person authorized to walk into the tabernacle without getting killed. He's the person authorized to go in. And of what, what's interest to us is what he wears. Look at verse 12. Chapter 28, verse 12. Aaron shall what? Shall bear. Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Skip down to verse 29. <clears throat> so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. In other words, Aaron is the high priest. He is their representative. He bears the name of Israel before God. So what does this mean for the third commandment? I think it means that God is saying to the people of Israel, you now are my representatives. You have my name. Do not bear it up. Do not represent my name in an empty and vain way. You remember the main idea of Exodus? The main thought and purpose of Exodus? It is to make God's name known. We saw this. We've been talking about this over and over again. Exodus 9.16. What's the purpose of the Exodus? He, God says, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Psalm 106 in Exodus says, yet he saved them, talking about the Exodus, saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Isaiah even comments on Exodus saying, Isaiah 63, 14, you led your people to make yourself a glorious name, and that's the main idea of Exodus. And now God tells Israel, you have been called by my name. You have been set apart you are the royal priesthood. You are my representatives. You are the means by which my name will be made known, so don't bear it in vain. And beloved brothers and sisters, you too are bearers of God's name. You are a Christian. You bear the name of Christ. It was by 
calling on his name that you were saved in the first place. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. When you were saved, you were baptized. You underwent believer's baptism. And you were baptized in accordance to Matthew 28 in what? Baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was in Antioch in Acts 11 that the disciples were first called Christians, little Christs. Beloved, the very name of Christ is associated with everything you do. This is why we can misuse the name of the Lord by honoring him with our lips, but having empty it while our hearts are far from him. This, there's a way to break the third commandment in which we misuse the name of the Lord by speaking hallowed words while having hollow hearts. Jen Wilkin gives a variety of examples of bearing God's name in vain. She, she writes, the parent who requires a child's apology but who never apologizes themselves for their own missteps. Uh, the mentor who dispenses godly wisdom to a younger believer that he himself has not learned to employ. The woman singing praise songs at the top of her lungs who has not cracked open her Bible in months. The man who prays publicly, but his private prayers life is non-existent. The greeter at the church smiling, smiling broadly, but who earlier that morning berated his family for being slow to get in the car. The preacher who exhorts others to repent while harboring an unrepentant heart. I remember as a, as a young man when I got caught for stealing, I was a young teenager and perhaps the most stinging rebuke was the one that I got from my mom. And she said, and you call yourself a Christian. I recognize that there is an unwholesome dose of legalism here when I say that. Christians don't claim to be perfect. Christians are those who know they are sinners. But they're the ones that are the repentant ones that turn to Christ. But there is a biblical truth here that how those who claim to be people of God behave is an essential and inseparable component in the credibility of what they say they believe about the God whose name they bear. 2 Timothy 2.19 says this, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is why as a church we exercise church discipline. It's for the good of the offender, yes, but also to promote the purity of the church and to vindicate the honor of the name Christian and of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you, pr when you practice church discipline, you say, here is someone who goes by the name of Christian, by the name who claims Christ, but we cannot call him a Christian any longer. We do it because Christ's name is so precious to us. Everything we do, we want to honor the name of Jesus. Perhaps there are some of you this morning, and you bear the name of Christ, but you do so in vain. It's merely an empty profession. Maybe something that was expected of you to profess the name of Christ. 
This is something you did because everyone else was doing it. Well, the third commandment tells us that God will judge those who are ultimately hypocritical in the use of his name. If we take up his name, but we do not take up the reality of it, if we profess his name, but we do not live in accordance with it, if we say that we have tasted grace, but we are ungracious, if we say that we have known love, but we are unloving, then we take his name in vain. And God will not leave those unpunished who bear his name in vain. For all those who break God's law, for all those who take up the name, yet never truly repent, yet never truly acknowledge Christ's lordship, there remains a final judgment. Professing believer in Jesus, have you taken your name, the, have you taken God's name in vain? Have you claimed to be his follower, yet you do not love him? Have you claimed to be his follower, yet you do not trust him, you do not have faith in him, you have zero desire to obey what he says? God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And Jesus warns in, in, in Matthew 7 that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. When Christ returns, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a frightening statement. Now, some will have God's name on their lips, but not have it on their hearts. And so my plead with you this morning is to come now to God. Come now to the name of Jesus, the name that is above all names. Repent and trust in the saving work of Jesus upon the cross. Draw near and call out to him because the promise is held out to you. The promise that we even read earlier in the, in, in the word of assurance that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which does not seek for us to be changed merely on exterior habits, but the habits of the heart. And so, Father, we ask that we would, as a church, bear your name with the 